Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. What we're going to do each night is I'm going to teach through the material, if you'll give me just like 15 to 20 minutes here. And then I'm going to give you an opportunity, if you've got your study Bible with you, if you've got any Bible passages that have caused a question to pop up in your mind, or maybe a favorite Bible verse that you'd like for us to discuss, we will do that each night. So don't go feverishly looking to try to trip me up. <laughs> you know, but if you've got a Bible verse in Matthew that you just really are curious about, I'll do my best to address those one by one. I'm doing it cold turkey, but I'll, I'll do my best. Matthew is obviously the first gospel account for a reason. It's not necessarily there because it's the oldest, and it's not necessarily there because it was the most frequently circulated. It's first, basically, I believe, because of the approach that Matthew gives to the story of Jesus. And he starts with the genealogy. If you have your Bible there, you can notice in Matthew chapter 1, it says, this book, the book, of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I was asked one time at a seminar, we had about 400 Christians present, if there was anyone in the audience who could quote the first verse in the New Testament. And everybody was fairly silent for a while. Finally, an older gentleman stood up and he said, I can quote the first book in the New Testament. And the speaker said, go right ahead. And he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the teacher very kindly said, That's the first verse in the Gospel of John. That's not the first verse in the Gospel of Matthew. Of the entire audience, mainly comprised of preachers and elders, there was not a one of us who could quote Matthew 1 and verse 1. Now, I took that as a shame upon myself, but I knew the first verse verse of the Old Testament. In the beginning was the Word, right? No, I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's why it's so familiar to us when we read John chapter 1. But I I was unfamiliar with how Matthew started because most of us, when we're reading the New Testament, will skip right over that genealogy. You know, we don't want to stumble over begat this and begat that. We want to move to the stories because that's where we're impacted. 
Matthew is teaching us a valuable lesson about the genealogy of Jesus for several reasons. One is to show his connection to, as he said, David, which is the king, the lineage by which the Messiah would come, and also Abraham to connect him back to the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is important. And so as he goes through and starts from Adam all the way back, or Abraham all the way back, he begins to show this genealogy that was necessary to prove Jesus as the Messiah. The author, of course, doesn't identify himself. In a lot of books in the New Testament, we will find that the author will, will say who he is, or he'll say the audience to which he's reading, writing to. That does not happen in Matthew. Matthew just jumps into this genealogical, genealogical list. But by history, we have attributed it to Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, or Matthew, the tax collector. Uh, I, I believe if you read Matthew chapter 9 and you read chapter 10, as his story is told when he's brought to Christ, and then if you look at it from Mark and Luke's perspective, it has to be this Matthew tax collector that is a disciple of Jesus that wrote this book. There are just too far too many things that he knows about Jesus that he would not know had he not walked with him. In Mark's gospel, for instance, which we'll notice next time, there are certain things that Mark avoids in his conversation with his audience because he simply was not there. He jumps into immediately the ministry of Jesus because he was far too young to participate in those early years before Jesus was baptized by John in the wilderness and then, of course, coming in through the temptation to the time in which Mark was writing it. But John was there, and Matthew was there. And so they give us a unique perspective. Um, another thing is, history tells us that the early church accepted Matthew as the writer. There was never a question as to whose authorship was of this book. Now, there are others in the Bible that scholars got around in a circle and scratched their heads and said, hey, is it possible this person wrote that? That's what the book of Hebrews we'll get to later. We don't know who wrote that book, but we're fairly confident, I want to say 99.99% sure, that Matthew is the one who uh, wrote this book, even though he doesn't sign his name. Now, Matthew, the word Matthew, the name Matthew, means a gift from God. And this is truly a gift from God, the first book in our New Testament. Matthew's name appears seventh in both lists whenever they are giving the men who followed Jesus the disciples or the apostles. Uh, he's also mentioned eighth in two others, in Matthew and in Acts. The last time we hear about Matthew is in Acts. He is mentioned there when he's around uh, the table, at least with those individuals that are praying together when the Holy Spirit is poured out. But after that, Matthew disappears off the pages of Scripture. We don't know where he went. We only have traditions as to what they think happened to Matthew. But he was obviously very busy in uh, Jerusalem, as the other apostles would have been. Uh, if you're familiar with Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a very popular book that tells uh, historical and some uh, biographical information regarding people that lived in Bible times, reaching up into, depends on what book you have, the 18th, 19th century. And this is what it says about Matthew. It says, whose occupation was a toll gatherer, or a tax collector, was born at Nazareth. He wrote his gospel in Hebrew, which was afterwards translated into Greek by James the Less. The scene of his labors were Parthia and Ethiopia, in which the latter country he suffered martyrdom being slain with a halberd. Now that is, uh, to kind of explain what that means, it's a kind of a combination of a spear and a battle axe. It's a very odd-looking device, and it has a long handle on the end. 
I think somewhat like Thor carries in Stormbreaker, if you're familiar with that. Anyway, um, basically a long handle with an axe on the end. And it was not always used for beheading, but whenever they had a beheading, it would be one of the options that it would be used. And it is said that he died in AD 60, so early years as a martyr. Uh, Matthew's profession, as I said, was a tax collector. Now, let me give you a little history on that. I studied, I mentioned this last week, I think, in our class. Tax collectors were considered to be basically the scum of society. These were Jews. Remember, it says he, he wrote his book in Hebrew. He, these were Jews who had aligned themselves with the Romans and with the occupation. They received a little kickback sometimes from the taxes that they collected. And they were taking money from their Jewish brethren, which you did not, Jews did not do this to each other, where they collected all this great percentage of tax and interest. And he would take money, this is the way they viewed it, from the Jewish people who were slaves in this land, basically, in captivity, even though it's their homeland. And he's taking it and he's literally hand-delivering it to Caesar. And that's the way they looked at it. He's scum of the earth. He's, he's a, a traitor to the Jewish people. So he was hated. All of the tax collectors were very hated, especially by the more conservative groups of the Jewish faith. He, he technically, of course, to looking at Matthew chapter 9 and 10, he's in Capernaum for the Roman government there uh, had called him for whatever purpose to, to collect taxes in that area, maybe because of his connection at Nazareth, could have been his connection to some of those other places, but historically these guys would be placed somewhere where they could kind of stay close to home, which makes it even worse. On his way home, all of his neighbors know his profession. And they know who he is, and they, they would again look down upon him for doing this. In fact, in Scripture, Jesus will show that the Pharisees linked them, uh, linked them together with sinners. Remember how many times does Jesus talk about the tax collectors and the sinners? Or the Pharisees will say tax collectors and the sinners. They also lumped them with harlots. So, I mean, that's like, look, I know you're taking money and you're giving it to the Romans, but it's your profession. But they say they're just as bad as a prostitute. Now, that is, to us, we say, well, it couldn't be that bad. But to them, the, uh, down with the harlots on the lowest scum of society were these publicans, these tax collectors. Um, they're also often lumped with Gentiles. Now, again, that's someone who is a, uh, of, of a completely different religion, a completely different part of society. These were non-Jews. So they didn't even consider them to be family. You know, think about that. You're having everybody together for the for Hanukkah and the Festival of Lights, and you, where's Matthew? Oh, he's not invited anymore. That they would they would not have anything to do with someone like Matthew. And so it's interesting that Jesus goes to his place of business to call him into ministry, and I think that's significant. Let's let's bounce over there real quickly uh, to Matthew chapter nine and ten, and. Uh, in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 9, it's easy to remember, right? Matthew 9, 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. That's his tax office. His place of business. And he said to him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now, it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house. Whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. What just happened? They go together, right? They're literally arm in arm, Jesus and Matthew, to now have a meal together. That's a big no-no. The Jews did not do that. You didn't eat with a tax collector. You certainly didn't go to his house to eat. Look at what it says. 
that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Now it's a whole convention of publicans and sinners, harlots at Jesus' feet. Now, if you're going to start your ministry and you're going to try to be a good rabbi, you would never do this. Jesus is not showing that he's a rabbi like the Jews had rabbis. He's showing himself as the Messiah. He's here to save all. In fact, he'll talk about how the physician is needed for the sick, not for the healthy. And so he's going to the worst of society. And this is before he chooses his 12. So Matthew, depending on the list you look at, is, is called 7th, 8th, ninth in this list. It's before he gets to the last one. So somewhere in the middle of choosing, Matthew is chosen. And it's strategic because Matthew will have a, a very good influence on others. It says, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, but go and learn what this means. I love it when Jesus says that. Why don't y'all Pharisees go read your Bible? I mean, that's just, I just love that. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, that is, drop the mic. That is, that, Jesus, he hasn't even officially declared himself as a rabbi. He's starting to just be uh, selective in group, bringing these groups of people to him and bringing and calling out his disciples from that group. And he says, I want this guy. And he goes to, to his house and he's meeting all of his friends. And the Pharisees can't give Jesus Five seconds to enjoy ministry, they're right there up in his face telling him what's right and what's wrong. And, you know, it's very sad. I have a friend that posted something on social media today, and he said, what is the number one sin among Christians today? Well, if you were to say what the number one sin among believers is today, I noticed of like, I think it was 40-something comments, 90% of them said gossip, and some of the others said hypocrisy. Because it's so hard for people that are doing ministry and teaching people that, you know, we love each other, but we talk bad about each other. You know, and we love each other, but yet I'm going to tell you what to do, and I'm going to go live a completely different life. And this is one of the things Jesus had in contention with the Pharisees. They would not do what they were taught in Scripture to do. So Jesus says, go home and study again what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. As for the date of the book... We believe it was written somewhere around 60, if, 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 uh, if in fact uh, John, Knox, John Fox is right, then, G, then Matthew would have died just soon after writing this book. So basically, it's kind of like Paul's letters, and that he writes it just before he dies, which, which means to me, it's almost like his last will and testament. I think that John, in his gospel and with Revelation, he did a very similar thing. Before I die... I want to write down some things to share with the church. So somewhere around there. And we know because of the dating and because of the circulation, it couldn't have been around 70. In fact, once you reach 70 A.D., the only book that is, is written past that point is Revelation. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, but the Gospels uh, seem to show it could, have been some, it could have been somewhere just a little before 60. There are some people say it could have written as early as 40 A.D. Um, but anyways, it was written... Uh, not long before Matthew died. Another thing, too, is Matthew's theme is he wants to show us that Jesus is the king of kings. He starts with David's genealogy and Abraham's genealogy. There's another thing about the theme of Matthew that you might have overlooked. 
If you'll look at Matthew chapter 1, he gives us four women in this genealogy. Now, Luke doesn't do that. John, Mark, they're not going to do this. Luke, who's writing it in Hebrew to Jews, names four women. Now, who are they? Well, you've got Tamar, who is the daughter-in-law of Abraham, or not of Abraham, of Judah, that dressed as a prostitute in order to lure her father-in-law and had twin sons. That's one. Another one is Ruth. Now, Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who ends up marrying Boaz. Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David. So there we've got another woman that is listed in the genealogy. And does anybody remember uh, when you're going back through the Old Testament, a lady named Rahab? What do we know about Rahab? Well, she's a harlot. That's really all we know. She was, she was good at hiding people, and she was a harlot. And yet she is included in the genealogy here. And then, of course, Mary. Uh, well, wait a minute. Let me back up. Bathsheba is mentioned. Bathsheba is mentioned in the story here. It says Uriah's wife, I believe it says, uh, where it don't even actually have a, a, a name given. Let me go back here and, and see where that is. It's uh, You can jump in there if you see it. Verse 6, yes, David the king begat Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even mention Bathsheba by name. She's in the genealogy of Jesus. And then, of course, Mary, Jesus' mother. So every woman that is listed in the genealogy of Jesus has some kind of a checkered past. And Matthew shows how these men and these kings, who were great men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and there were others like David, but there were also women who had checkered past that are in this genealogy to show that Jesus is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords and Messiah to all, not just to the Jews, but to all of humanity. And so I, I find that interesting. I, I like those little side notes. Um, also, when you're reading about the, the phrase kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven uh, phrase is used 32 times in, in Matthew's book. And so he's hoping you'll get to the same conclusion as he did, and that is that, obviously, Jesus is the Messiah. The audience, uh, I mentioned it was written in Hebrew. It's probably written to a Jewish audience first and then translated into other languages. So if you're a Jew... This book would tell you all the prophecies of Jesus that have been fulfilled. They knew their Bible. They knew the Old Testament. So Matthew will do this. Jeremiah the prophet said. Isaiah the prophet said. David the psalmist said. And Matthew gives you footnotes. Some of us, we just want the facts. You know, that's Mark's gospel. But others of us would like to do a little bit more digging. How do we know how do we know that Jesus fulfilled that prophecy? Well, it's found in Jeremiah chapter. I mean, it's great how Matthew footnotes everything. And so if you have any questions as to whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, if he fulfilled prophecy, just read Matthew, and all of your doubts will be washed away. Because there are literally hundreds of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, and Matthew quotes them backward and forward. Um, so what about the key verses? Let me give you a few, and then we'll, we'll dive into the ones that interest you uh, more, than, more than others. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, of course, Jesus is in chapter 1 and 2. These are the early years of his birth and of his, um, his time with his parents and the fleet, flight to Egypt and so forth. But as we move forward into chapter 
chapter 3 and 4, Jesus, of course, is baptized by John. We'll have that a little bit more in detail in John's gospel. And then in chapter 4, the first thing that Jesus does after being baptized is being led into the wilderness. And so Matthew tells us of three temptations that came to Jesus through Satan. Three temptations. Matthew says these are them. And uh, I'll probably take some time in Luke's gospel because they're, they're two lists. And there's actually uh, one that is flip-flopped. We'll, t- we'll talk about why that is later. But um, there are three temptations to Jesus. And, of course, he overcomes them. And it says the devil left him, verse 11, chapter 4. And the angels came and ministered to him. Then he begins this Galilean ministry. And as you start chapter 5, Jesus takes all of his disciples and he sees this multitude of people that's following him because he walked everywhere he went. And they they go up on this mountainside. And so he just stops. And it says that when he was seated with the disciples, all these people came to him. He then opened his mouth and began to say the Beatitudes. Now, if you're here Sunday mornings, this is what Billy's covering. And Jesus begins one of the most powerful sermons, if not the most powerful sermon ever preached. It's called the Beatitudes. Having a tough day? Want a little encouragement? Read these three chapters. These are things that every single Christian ought to practice. And there are several times Matthew, remember he's a Jew, is going to say when Jesus is preaching on the mountain, he not only quotes scripture, but he also quotes tradition. And he'll say multiple times, you've heard it said of old, but now I say. And he also tells them here in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. So why is Jesus introducing these teachings that the Pharisees were saying, like an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, and you know you shouldn't shouldn't uh, shouldn't hate your neighbor. You know he says, well, or, or you shouldn't kill somebody. He goes through all of these lists and say, well, you shouldn't commit adultery. And he says, look, as you used to hear that, don't commit adultery. But now I'm saying you can't even look upon somebody with lust in your heart. So over and over, Jesus is showing them a change is coming. It doesn't come in Matthew seven. But the change is coming that soon all of the teachings that they had heard from the rabbis were going to be washed away. And he says something specifically about the law that interests me. He says, and I will, he says, I'm not going to destroy the law. I will, what? Fulfill it. Fulfill it. That means that it is taken and you can close it up. It has been completely fulfilled. It doesn't throw it out. It doesn't destroy it. It doesn't poke holes in it. And Jesus will say several times through his teachings, things like not one jot or tittle will be erased and removed from the law until all is fulfilled. And on the cross, praise God, Jesus said what? It is finished. He had fulfilled the law at his death. But wait, there's still a little more, right? He prophesied himself that on the third day after his death, which fulfilled all prophecy and solidified him as the sacrificial lamb, he says, I will rise again. So on the third day, Sunday morning, he raises up. And then he begins to teach in those 40 plus days about all the things he's going to do when he comes again and he ascends into heaven. And then we have Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. And they have about a week there to pray and fast in Jerusalem that he sends the Holy Spirit. But Matthew is the gospel that sets all this up. So the the Sermon on the Mount is great. Um, As you go through also, I think about another passage, uh, if you want to highlight another one. I love 
we got a preacher up in Florence, and he'll always say, write that down, you know, mark that passage. Um, but here's one to, to take a good look at, Matthew chapter 11. Now, this is one that I remember our preacher growing up, Carl Herndon, would quote this often in the invitation, and I always thought it was great. This is chapter 11, the last three verses. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, it's just a message. It's just a statement about rest to his disciples. It's just to introduce them the concept that, hey, I'm here if you need me. But what a comforting passage, 2,000 years since it was spoken, to every Christian who opens the book. That you can rest easy because my burden is light and I'll give it to you. And you, t you take the heavy one off your shoulders and hand it to me. And I, I know that visually we can't see it, but there are times when we're on our knees or on our face or our head bowed and saying, God, please take this burden from me, that he physically and spiritually removes it. We don't see it, but it happens. And then he lays a lighter one on our shoulders, the one that he wants us to bear. Because most of the stuff that we carry, we were never intended to carry in the first place. So Jesus says, take my, my burden upon yourself and, and let me have yours. Another really good passage I think about is Matthew 16. So I know we're kind of rushing through, but man, there are so many great passages that I want to mention. One is Jesus uh, has an interaction with his disciples uh, at Caesarea Philippi, and people said that in that day there was a, a little cave that was often known to be the house of the devil, or at least the, the temple of Satan. And so they would talk about the gates of Satan there with this particular place. And historians believe that Jesus actually delivered this message in front of that location. And he, he takes his disciples apart and he says, you know, let's go over here, let's have a conversation. And it says that when they come out to him in uh, Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he says, who do men say that I am? This is Matthew 16, 13. So they said, some say John the Baptist, who has been imprisoned and killed for his, his uh, teaching. Some say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. This is the key, verse 15. He, he says, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He doesn't hesitate. There's no doubt in his voice. He doesn't say, I think. He says, you are. You are the Son of the living God. And then listen to what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. What's that? Flesh and blood? That means humans have not revealed it to him. The insight and the wisdom that has been given to Peter. Now, this is interesting too. Peter is called by three names in the New Testament. He's called Peter, he's called Simon, and he's called Cephas. And that is to reference his name in different languages. It's like if I go to Mexico, they would call me Ramon. Okay, that's fine. I can roll it, you know, Ramon. That's what they would call me in Spanish culture. My name's still Ray, but that's what they would say. That rhymed. So we look at this, and he says Simon, Peter. So he uses both, both his surname and his name. And then he'll use, not only that, but in, in Paul's time, he'll say Cephas. Notice what he calls him. 
Simon bar Jonah. Interesting. Jesus says nothing by accident. Simon bar Jonah. Are we talking about his father? Yes, but why does he identify him as bar Jonah, the son of Jonah? Because it is to Peter that he said earlier, I am going to make you a fisher of men. And there is no greater illustration of someone who is conveniently attributed with fish stories in the Bible than Jonah. And so he says to him, blessed are you because flesh and blood, nobody has taught you this. You know, you acknowledge me as the son of God. And he says, the father in heaven has given you this, this knowledge that therefore, because of the confession, he says, I say to you, verse 18, that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded the disciples not to tell anybody he was Jesus the Christ. But the message is clear to Peter. I am going to give you the keys. Now, I love this illustration. It works really well with kids. They know what keys are, right? Now, nowadays, kid hits 16. He's got a cell phone and an iPad, and he's had a car for two years. But in my day, when you got the keys to mom and dad's car, you got to go to town. I mean, you now I bought one. It didn't run very well, but I bought one at age 13. And I remember when I needed to go to town, and that is to drive into town 20 miles away, I needed a good, reliable car. And so there was something special about getting those keys. You'll watch kids open up on birthdays and Christmases, packages, and they open it up, and there's those keys, and they know what that means, even if it's just a fob. The keys are to the kingdom. <laughs> it's the opportunity to go do something great. And, and to a Jew, the illustration of being given keys is to be given authority to open something up, like a vault or a vase or a, a treasure house. You have the keys, and he says, I am going to give them to you so that you can open up the kingdom. That's a direct fulfillment of Acts chapter 2, as Peter's going to be the one who preaches on Pentecost. And then he says something else very interesting when he says you can bind on earth, be bound in heaven, loose on earth, be loose in heaven. And we'll talk about that when we get to Acts chapter 1. So then you move on, and chapter 18 and 19, uh, Jesus is getting ready to enter into Jerusalem. And when you get to chapter 20, we call this the, the, um, the, the Passion Week. The last week of Jesus' life are these eight chapters from 20 to 28. And, and as you begin chapter 20, they do their triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And then after they come into Jerusalem, it tells us that they recognize him as the Messiah. They're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're saying that they recognize him as the son of David. And they're laying down the palm branches. Again, prophecy being fulfilled. And he's riding in on this little donkey colt, this little, little, little critter. It's, kind of, it's almost hilarious when you think about it that of all the animals he could have come in on. And, you know, there were some, go back to Hannibal and some of the stories of back in the Roman culture that they used elephants for things. Jesus could have called any animal to himself, and he, he calls a little, little, little colt. Now, it could have been, if he wanted to make it really, you know, neat, it, it could have been like a, a goat or a sheep because it's so small. But he uses it because the prophecy was he would come like that. Now, why? Let me tell you why. It was commanded of the kings. Moses said, if you're going to have a king, don't, don't have a king, don't have a king, don't have a king. But if you do, he cannot multiply for himself horses 
and he could not marry multiple women, and he could not have all this wealth. So Jesus shows himself as a humble Messiah. He's not coming in as a king to take over the Roman culture because he's not going to multiply horses and make money. He's here to give his life as a sacrifice, and that goes back to the prophecies from the Old Testament. So Matthew 20, he comes into Jerusalem, and from that point forward, he's going back and forth to Bethany, which we learned from John, and he's going daily back and forth to the temple, and John tells a lot of really cool details. I'll wait for that later, but there are some really neat details that John says that Jesus does every day. One of them goes by these fig trees. Remember the story? He curses the fig tree, and nothing happens immediately, but the next day they come back by and come back by. What happened? Oh, there, that fruit's gone. Jesus did that for an illustration as well. But we come to the end, and of course, Matthew's gospel tells us about his encounter with Pilate uh, in chapter 27. Pilate wants to wash his hands. He doesn't want anything to do with it. And of course, uh, Pilate, we learn, his wife has told him. That would have been a, long, that would have been a clear and, uh, indication myself, right? If your wife tells you not to do something, because he will hear about that the rest of your life. Pilate is told not to have anything to do with this, this man, but yet he does anyway. He says, I'm just going to wash my hands and let you handle it. And it tells us in the text that they said, let his blood be on us and our children. So the Jews were willing to accept the penalty, whatever it might be, for killing an innocent man. And then, of course, in Matthew 28, Jesus is in the tomb. Mary and the ladies come to the tomb. They're wanting to see whether or not he is there. And one of my favorite lines that is given in scripture is when it says uh, verse 6 well let me go back to verse 5 uh, it says the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified and this is it verse 6 he is not here for he is risen as he said he would come and see the place where he where he lay where the Lord lay so this is how the book ends is they're on the search for Jesus he finally appears to them and he gives them the great commission where he says in verses 18 through 20 that I am, you know, I've given all authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. He gives them the message. This is it. You've got to go. You've got to teach. You've got to preach. And when you do, I will be with you until the end of the time. And that is how the gospel of Matthew ends is that there is clearly a job that needs to be fulfilled. This is like, have you ever read a book and you finish the last chapter and then there's like a little section in the back that says, oh, by the way, here's the follow-up book and you get to read like six or seven paragraphs and I hate it when they do that. I mean, I like it, because, but I really hate it because when is that book coming out? Oh, it'll come out in six months. Well, then why did you put one little section? We can't wait for the rest of Matthew and that is told throughout these other gospel accounts and the book of Acts where we really get into the exciting things that the church did. So that basically is a summary of Matthew in a you know, 30-minute, 25-minute little increment of time. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. 
Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldsrab.com. Hope you have a wonderful day and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.